Good morning. I'm just going to give you guys all a disclaimer. I have been super sick this week, and I couldn't even talk two days ago. So we will see how this goes. Forgive me if I need to suck down some water or if I just start having a coughing attack. I just hope I'm far enough away from you guys that you don't get what I've had. I'm thankful to be here with you guys this morning, and I hope that we can just dive in the word together and just see what God has for us today. When I was 12 years old, I went to my first Westland Youth Conference, Charlotte, North Carolina. Of course, I was juiced out of my mind to not only be in youth group for the first time as a seventh grader, but a trip to a faraway state right after Christmas time. Nothing really gets better than that. The summer after my sixth grade year was when my pastor finally allowed me to be baptized. I had been wanting to be baptized for a number of years, but I did submit to our church's particular reasons that we had to wait till we were in sixth grade. So I really believe it was great timing. I felt stronger in my faith than ever, and I wanted to shout it from the rooftops that I was going to live for Jesus no matter what for the rest of my life. That youth conference was called C3, Consumed called and convinced. If it wasn't for this conference, I don't know if my faith would have solidified itself in the same way. There's just something about those three words. Consumed. Consumed by God's love for me. Consumed by his passion, his power, his faithfulness. Called. Called by God, even as a 12-year-old. Called into greatness, into his greatness. And convinced, no matter what, I was convinced, no matter the storms that hit me, I was convinced that I had given my life not to a temporary pleasure, a fleeting desire, a social norm, but to the God of a universe, the universe. Convinced life was worth so much more than what I could have fallen for in the future. C3 is where I felt my call to go into ministry. It's where I felt his anointing to not only bring his word into my future career, but into my daily life, into my family, and my school, and my sports teams, and every setting. It's where I felt empowered to live a gospel-centered life. I'll admit it, though, I was a weird kid. I was the kid with the off-brand Christian slogans, shirts, saying ridiculous things. I, my favorite sweatshirt was called Mr. Trouble, which was an offshoot of the Mr. Bubble Soap, and it talked about our enemy, the devil, but it had this cute, chubby, bubbly little pink face, and I was obsessed with it. I had quite the fashion sense as well. With that favorite sweatshirt, I would wear hot pink tights and denim skirt, crazy earrings and bright sneakers. I'll see if I can, well, I, I tried. I tried <laughs> to find a picture for you guys. I even asked one of my best friends growing up, but I couldn't. So if I, if I find it, I'll let you know. To sum it up, I stood out. I stood out everywhere I went without realizing it. I went to a public school, and every single person I knew knew I was a Christian. But here's the thing, I was also a loyal friend and a, goof, a goofball, sorry. I played sports and I did music. I think we always peg Christians as the crazies, but God can really use us in any setting as long as we are willing to be used. I was able to find favor in the world, but not compromise on my beliefs. And don't get me wrong, I was not perfect in any way. And you can just ask my family because I'm sure they have stories just don't ask my cousin Josh because he makes things up all the time, including when he supposedly found me watching Jerry Springer as an eight-year-old. Don't listen to him. <laughs> but I wasn't perfect either way. There was one major difference between myself and my friends at church at the time. I was willing to let God use me. 
I was willing to stand out and stand up because I was convinced of his call and I was actually and totally consumed by his love for me. Did you believe all of that at 12 years old? Do you believe that now? What happens to that zealous preteen in the story? Did she keep believing she was consumed, called, and convinced? Or did that change over time as the waves hit her? Rick Warren sets up the passage we're about to talk about today. And the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den is an obvious example of standing up for God no matter what. No matter the trials you may face or how unpopular it makes you. Are you willing to be found blameless? No matter the peer pressure, no matter the threat to your life or the pain that might come, are you willing to take a stand of God's faithfulness like Daniel did? Rick runs through a few main points about why Daniel wasn't afraid and how we can benefit by standing up for God. But we're not going to go there today because that's what our groups are for. We're going to be talking about something else, and Pastor Rick will teach us more this week. I do, however, want to keep the title and the focus. What does it look like to stand for God? What does it look like to do the right thing even if you're standing alone? Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Is your skin starting to crawl? <laughs> Let's jump right in. Daniel chapter 6 opens up by telling us how Daniel had once again climbed that ladder of success. At this point, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, had just been killed and King Darius of Persia took his throne. Right before Belshazzar died, he made Daniel the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And although there was a new king in town, we learn from verses 1 through 5 that Daniel also found favor with Darius. In fact, Daniel was one of the three rulers or presidents over in charge of 120 satraps, which were the provincial rulers of the kingdom. The king was so impressed with Daniel, though, that he wanted him in charge of the whole kingdom. And needless to say, the satraps and administrators did not find that amusing in any way. They wanted to find fault with Daniel. But of course, Daniel was awesome. <laughs> they couldn't do it. The king knew Daniel was exceptional. He was trustworthy and far from corrupt. So the officials agreed that they had to take him down one way or another, and it seemed that the only way they could trap him is if they found something about his devotion to God. And some of us already know how this story unfolds. But for those of us who don't, and because we all need a reminder, this is the part of the story when the officials figure out an extremely sneaky and ultimately successful way to take Daniel down. They go to the, verse, the king in verse 6 and butter him up. They manipulate him. And they take advantage of either his knowledge that it could be a good move politically or maybe his insecurity about being the new king in town, needing praise and admiration. They convince him to make an edict that anyone who worships or prays to anyone other than him in 30 days would be thrown into the lion's den. And because of the law of Medes and Persians, the King Darius would adhere to, the king could not repeal his decree and they knew that. The officials knew that they had trapped the king when he was willing to write, put it in writing and make it official. And that's where we pick up here in verse 10 as Daniel responds and the story continues to unfold. Verse 10, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking for God for help. Daniel didn't see that coming at all. 
So when they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree, did you not publish a decree that in the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in, ordinance, in accordance with the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So here comes the historically epic tattletale. Then they said to the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done wrong, any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to the nations and the people of every language on earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue you to decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And he rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. One of my favorite ways to read the Bible is by using what is called the method of character study. And people often use this at home doing devotions and maybe in Bible study settings, but this is how it works. You look at each of the characters individually and you think about what stands out to you about them. Maybe you find consolation in their responses or you're angry at the way they acted. Maybe you feel convicted by the thoughts and language and actions they portrayed and you feel like you resonate with them. Which ones do you resonate with? As we look at this passage, I think there's three main characters that stand out. The satraps and the administrators, the king, and Daniel. And even though the satraps and administrators are more than one person, they represent one mindset. So which one do you identify with out of those three main characters? Are you like the officials? Are you insecure about what you bring to the table? So maybe you look for small ways to trap someone else into looking bad? Do you hope that the people around you make more mistakes than you so that people don't look closely at yours? Do you wish the best for everyone or do you struggle with resentment, scheming with your coworkers how to take down someone that you feel envious about? 
Do you feel like you're not getting enough praise or that you deserve a promotion that maybe you were passed up for someone else? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and you wish so badly your spouse understood how hard it was that you secretly hope they experience a little bit of failure too. What do you do now if you've resonated with the officials? You can see that other people's success bothers you and your attitude has put a natural barrier between you and them. So how do you change your mindset before you become just like the satraps and the administrators eventually found out for their malicious intent? Will you repent and draw near to a new security? One that is found in Jesus and can't be stripped away from you. An identity that can't be altered no matter how the world sees you. Will you choose to stand for God and renounce those areas of sin in your life? Instead, run to that rest and the unending grace of God who sees you exactly for who you are and what you have to offer who has bigger plans for you and a bigger perspective than you can see right now. What about King Darius? Do you resonate with him? Are you a good guy, a good lady? Are you genuinely saddened when people are discriminated against or have experienced some great misfortune? Maybe it keeps you up at night, but to no avail. Maybe you struggle with complacency and passivity. Do you jump out of bed in the morning wanting to change the lives of the people around you? Or do you just say a quick prayer into the air and go about your day trying to fit in with the rest of the world? Are you more worried about standing out in the community you serve or are you concerned about the injustices that you see daily? King Darius is a fascinating character to me. I believe he represents the majority of the people in this church, the majority of the people in this city, this this country, this world, most of us aren't bad guys. In fact, the commentary from Stephen B. Reed points out that the narrator seems to, to literally paint King Darius as a good guy to highlight the major differences between the harshness of the Babylonian Empire and the less harshness of the, the Persian Empire. He seems to make a point at the very least that King Darius is at least more sane and tolerable than King Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the thing, nice people don't change the world. Nice people might open the door, but I've known plenty who won't stand up against the injustice around them. I went to youth group with plenty of nice girls, but did their friends even know they were Christians at school? No. I've known plenty of nice guys who don't stand up against locker room talk and stand idly by when they could stop the promotion of negative stigmas or prejudices, but they don't. King Darius loved Daniel, but his love wasn't enough to come up with a plan B to save him, to think of a contrary decree that might just rescue him. In fact, a few scholars believe that the law itself wasn't as cut and dry as we like to think it was. King Darius could have revoked that law, but because he was a new king in town with insecurities of his own and a face to live up to, it would have been social suicide to go back on his word. And he knew this. Albert Einstein said, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. Or even a more intense version of this quote is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was killed during the Holocaust. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Do you resonate with King Darius the nice guy? 
Do you know in your gut that you are supposed to be living for so much more than you're living for? Maybe you've missed chances to stick up for someone or you've squandered opportunities to share the hope of Christ because you were scared of what your people would think of you. Do you save face or do you save souls? I think if we're all honest with ourselves in one way or another, we are King Darius. So what do we do when we've made that realization? I think it's taking one day at a time Choosing to follow God in the little ways, knowing that the big ones will inevitably come. It's practicing being faithful in the small things and believing that God will do the rest. This quote by Stephen Furtick is one I love. Audacious faith is not passive, neither is audacious prayer. Every aspiration you have in prayer needs to be accompanied by an action. Otherwise, you are not really praying, you're just pontificating. You do the natural and trust God for the super. King Darius eventually learned to live for more than just his security, his popularity, or his comfort, but it took a bit, and it took some miracles. Will you have the strength to push past mediocrity and live in the power of the resurrection? Will you stand for God publicly as King Darius eventually did, declaring that our God is the living God who rescues and saves? Now let's talk about Daniel. He's blameless, he's faithful, he's brave, and he's long-suffering. But what if he wasn't? What if he had mental battles like everyone else, like all of us, and he had come up on the other side choosing not to follow God? Maybe that's the character you most identify with. Maybe, like Daniel, you've lived a lifetime of faithfulness. Or at the very least, you're in a season of full trust, cooperation, and obedience to God. Maybe you've seen God do miraculous things in your life. Maybe you've leaned on God in the many hard trials you've faced and even lit up some of those dark places of the planet with the light you radiate from God's love. But like Daniel, you're 70 years old. Or maybe you're not 70, but you, your heart is exhausted. We don't ever think of Daniel as old, especially if you were like me and you grew up with veggie tales. Daniel was portrayed by a very young and very spry and crazy little cucumber named Larry. It was very misleading, to say the least. The Daniel of the Bible at this time had been in exile almost his whole life. He had been through hurdle after hurdle. He had been in danger, and he had been saved. He was promoted, and he was hated. And this happened over and over again. Daniel must have been tired at this point. He must have been weary of the trials and the traps, but he didn't give up. He knew that God would continue to use him as long as he was willing. And if you're like Daniel and you've lived a long spiritual life, you've given and you've given, you've trusted and you've been faithful, please keep holding on. Because for the rest of us, your faith is inspiring your stories are needed, your work and your talent and passion are valued. If Daniel had allowed himself one excuse of being too tired, too done, or retired in the sense of his calling, he wouldn't have given us this classic Bible story to be encouraged by. He wouldn't have been God's vessel to bring another pagan king to his knees. And he wouldn't have eventually experienced the return of his own Jewish people out of exile to their homeland during the reign of Cyrus. Daniel was crucial in his own story. 
and God continued to use him before and after he turned 70 years old. If you resonate with Daniel, what is God saying to you? What can you do to stay in the game and keep pursuing God's ever-adventurous, incredible plan for your life? At this point, at one point, you were also consumed, called, and convinced. Do you still believe that? In what ways have you actually needed to rest, and in what ways are you maybe making excuses because you're simply tired of being in the race? We all need you, as Daniels, in our lives, as we strive to become them ourselves. Don't give up and don't give in. Will you continue to stand for God? Whether you've resonated with all of these characters at different points in your lives, at different seasons, or just one, what do we do with that conviction? Where do we go? What do we need to pursue and remember? Number one, that prayer is the missing puzzle piece. When we look at the whole picture of Daniel's life, one of the main characteristics we see in him is his consistency. And the first thing he was consistent about was going to God three times a day and seeking his face. The powerful, this powerful attribute gives Daniel a leg up on everyone else. Mother Teresa's words, be faithful in small things because it's in them that your strength lies. And Rick Warren says it like this, the more you kneel, the more you stand strong. The more you pray, the more confidence you will have. Daniel had confidence because he already made a habit of going to the Lord daily to find his strength. I don't want to steal any of Justin's thunder for next week because his sermon actually focuses on prayer as a central point. But I just had to bring up the story because it happened not even two weeks ago, and it has a lot to do with you. I can't quite explain the weight of what immigration troubles feel like. If you're from another country and you live here, you might just understand but it's something that Justin and I struggle to articulate well. And we've found in the past that it's so hard to articulate the anxiety and frustration that we weren't able to be open and vulnerable with basically anyone. Our closest family and friends and the staff would know, but we never opened it up for something to be prayed about corporately or at least on a larger scale. But that changed this year. I don't know if we got to the point where our anxiety was too much to bear knowing that now our decisions affect a little lives in our, in our family. Or maybe it was this unshakable study. But we are much more open this time around, more willing to talk about our fears with other people and to ask for prayers on our behalf, to be encouraged by people like you who genuinely want the best for us. So as usual, driving back to the border after a sleepless night in a hotel in Potsdam, New York, staying up half the night with a sleepless one-year-old, we felt an immense emotional and physical exhaustion take over us with just the right amount of anxiety and fear mixed in there. Justin loves boy bands. Sorry to throw, throw you under the bus there. Not really sorry because you chose it. <laughs> so we were, we were playing One Direction on Spotify. And for whatever reason, either my distaste in boy bands or my obvious need for even external peace I suggested, let's, let's turn it to some worship music strictly for the last few miles. Just got to get my mind in the right place. So we turned it on for that last little trek to the border. And song after song was exactly what we needed to hear. One song that played talked about our prayers being answered. It is so by elevation. And then Sea of Victory, a song we've been singing here for the last few weeks, came on. 
Friends, we claimed victory hard in that car that day. As we neared the bridge, I prayed God would go before us and make a way, that he would fight our battles for us, that he would give us favor with the guards that we never seemed to have, that he would soften their hearts, that he would have that we would have just the right words to say and that he would even give Henry peace and allow him to behave well. That was our shortest border visit to date. God gave us favor. And as happily as Henry shrieked and ran around the room for an hour and a half, the guard did our paperwork and we both felt at peace that this time would be different. And this time we would be able to tell all of you that that was our experience. Don't be afraid to pray bold prayers. As Justin said in a sermon a few weeks ago, sometimes God doesn't save us through the fire, or from the fire, but through it. And those bold prayers might not save you from the fire. It might not save you from the lion's den or the belly of a whale or the job loss or the miscarriage or the marital status, status or depression, but he will save you through it. And God didn't stop Daniel from being thrown into the den, and he didn't stop us from having to go to the border for a millionth time. But he did miraculously shut the mouths of the lions, and he did miraculously change and soften those guards' hearts. Our God can do anything. He is unshakable. Number two, be surprised by your adversaries instead of giving up on them. Remember that naive, spunky, bizarre little 12-year-old I talked about at the beginning? The one with Christian slogans across her t-shirts and in her locker. The one who would speak up in class against the majority for something she believed in. The one who invited all of her unchurched friends to come to youth group to experience that same fun and joy she had. Well, that girl also had it pretty tough. As equally as she was loved, she was ridiculed. As much as she went to sleep feeling peace for doing the right thing, almost as many times she went to sleep with a tear-stained pillow. That spunky 12-year-old turned into a bold 16-year-old and an unstoppable 18-year-old. The tribe doubt God. They increased her faith in the God who had been there through the trials she had experienced before, through each struggle, that he would continue to be there and be next to her and the next one to come. That middle schooler experienced pain in weird ways and one time in the form of former friends coming up to me and telling me, that they spent the weekend burning Bibles just to see me uncomfortable. But do you know what that middle schooler, what I knew in my heart? That the people around me were little King Darius's walking around, craving what I had, wanting the security of knowing that they were loved like I was by something bigger than they could imagine. And it helped get me through. I think the world hungers and craves for our God to come through. Whether it's conscious or it's subconscious, I think the tests they give us, even the most ill-meaning tests and hurtful, they're meant to either expose our failures and a lack of God's presence or the ultimate realization that there is proof for God in this world. I think King Darius's exclamation to Daniel was a cry of hope for him. May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you even as the rocks cry out their praise to God, as the Bible says, I truly believe our unbelieving brothers and sisters desperately want us to be right. They want us to prove to them that we are living for so much, something so much greater than we can imagine. 
And even if something starts as a seed of insecurity or jealousy or hatred, I believe that most humans deeply desire for God to prove himself to us as something we can put all of our faith in. When they see us living that out, it's one of God's main modes to bring salvation to his people. When the world sees us standing up for God, no matter the cost, they are curious enough to stay and wait for the result. And when they wait for the result, they see God himself move in our impossibilities. The faith of King Darius intrigues me. He doesn't just hope Daniel is alive. He actually calls out to the den as if he knows he's alive. He's admitting to the world how much he hopes Daniel is alive. In fact, I don't think we give the, the king enough credit. I mean, I know that he was hasty in agreeing to a very intense decree. He fell to a deceptive plan, and he was temporarily so self-obsessed that he didn't realize how this would affect other people, even people he cared about. But the king, the king chose to almost debase himself as he shouts out to a man who is sure to be dead. He embarrassingly yells out in front of his subordinates to a man who spent the night with a bunch of lions because he was just that hopeful that Daniel's God would come through. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt and hope for the best, that maybe, just maybe, they are also waiting for just to see if God will come through as well. That they are secretly hoping he will. Number three, consumed, called, and convinced. As the service comes to an end, I want us to reflect on where we find ourselves today and what our next steps might be. Are you consumed by God's love? And if not, what are you consumed by that drives you day in and day out, your actions, thoughts, and words? Do you believe you are called? Do you hear his voice speaking over you of your importance and your purpose? And if not, what can you do to put yourself in a posture where you might hear his voice a little bit more clearly? Maybe it's making some more Christian friends to encourage you or reading the Bible more often. Maybe it's doing something as simple as switching the radio station every once in a while from boy bands to worship to recenter your thinking. Are you convinced? Are you convinced of his power in you? Convinced that he will hear both your bold and your meek prayers? Convinced that he has the best plan for you and has the power to close the mouths of the lions on your behalf? Do you see yourselves as the officials with a hardened heart Hardened by jealousy, anger, or resentment, do you see yourself as King Darius, the good guy who ultimately could not do the right thing? Or do you see yourself in Daniel, the faithful but worn friend of God? Wherever you find yourself today, please know that there is hope waiting around the corner. There is only forgiveness, hope, and grace waiting for you. No one believed that the same God who rescued Daniel from the mouths of the lions in order to save a king and prosper a nation in his name is the same God who will rescue you. As we spend the next few moments in worship, maybe you need to sit and reflect. Maybe you need to come to the altar and have other Christians pray for you because you just don't feel strong enough right now. Maybe you need to stand and worship full out with hands raised to heaven because you know that you're in the exact place God will use you. And you are more than willing to surrender for the sake of his purposes.
Like Daniel, you can boast in the Lord's faithfulness. He is the one who makes us truly brave to face the obstacles we are going through and will go through. Let his love crash over you and remind you that he is for us and not against us. Pray that he will make you brave so that you are able to go out into the waves and not be overtaken by their might. Stephen Furtick says it like this, the goal of faith isn't to take away your fears, but to leverage those fears to create bolder belief. Faith leads you past your fears and reassures you of God's presence. And after a while, you begin to trust that God is going to lift you above the waves this time, just like he did the last time. And let's worship the champion of heaven together. Would you stand and sing with us?
crash is over